You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast. Episode 218, Pearl Harbor, the strongest fortress in the world. Last time, in early 1941, the Empire of Japan and the United States began their diplomatic dance to keep the peace. But in reality, it was to dominate the other. As such, neither side was willing to give up much, yet the dance had to be played out. This was the way of things. The Japanese expected and hoped the United States would be consumed with assisting Britain as it struggled for its survival, while the Americans expected and hoped their economic weapons would be enough to stop the Japanese from trying to dominate Asia. But Admiral Yamamoto, knowing the Americans the way he did, as well as his own country's military, felt that not only was a conflict coming, but Japan could never beat the industrial powerhouse that was the United States. That is, in a long, drawn-out war. So in late 1940, and in earnest in early 41, the Admiral began planning a quick, decisive strike, a knockout punch, that would hopefully demoralize the Americans to the point that they wanted no truck with the Japanese, and hence peace, or at least acceptance, could become the new reality. But now that Yamamoto's basic plan of a carrier strike at Pearl Harbor was being floated around, his peers immediately began to attack its very daring. What about the massive American fleet, which would be sure to respond? What about the vast distance between Japan and Oahu? What about Pearl Harbor's shallow waters, in where torpedoes dropped from bombers were sure to get stuck in the mud? No, a better idea was to use the Japanese army 
to invade Southeast Asia, which would bring the enemy fleet to them. Then the Japanese Navy could have its decisive battle, just as Alfred Mahon's book had suggested several decades ago. Still others suggested, tentatively, that Operation Z, Yamamoto's attack, was so daring it just might work, as in, who would expect such a thing? Maybe it was possible. As previously covered, the Americans between Washington and Hawaii were equally firing off messages and reports, yet theirs were all of one accord. That Pearl was likely the first target if the Japanese were to launch a war, that it would come in the form of torpedo attacks from either bombers or submarines, and that Pearl did not have the scout craft, anti-aircraft guns, nor patrolling vessels needed to maintain a respectable watch and defense in case of said attack. But as the United States was gearing up from a paltry start across the board, its resources could not all be at the disposal of Pearl Harbor. Yamamoto took his concept of Operation Z and gave it to the 11th Air Fleet Chief of Staff, Rear Admiral Takajiro Onishi, and told him, I would like you to research the feasibility of such a plan in detail. We will have no hope of winning unless the U.S. fleet in Hawaiian waters can be destroyed. Yet it's worth pointing out that Yamamoto was only doing his duty. It was his job to protect the Japanese Empire. He did not want war with the United States, only to be ready if his government was unable or, frankly, unwilling to avoid one. As such, he then wrote an anti-war letter and sent it to the ultra-nationalists within the government. The letter quite simply spelled out what complete victory over the United States would have to look like. Given America's culture, the Japanese would have to not only take Guam and the Philippines, nor even Hawaii and San Francisco. No, to make victory certain, they would have to push across the continental U.S., march into Washington, and dictate terms of peace in the White House. Clearly, Japan did not have the resources or manpower for such a thing, and the intangible warrior code of the island nation could only go so far. Thus, Yamamoto ended his letter with, I wonder if our politicians, among whom armchair arguments about war are being glibly bandied about in the name of state politics, have confidence as to the final outcome and are prepared to make the necessary sacrifices. Still, 11th Air Fleet Chief of Staff Onoshi had been given his orders to manifest Yamamoto's Operation Z. So, Onishi contacted Commander Kosai Maeda, his expert in aerial torpedo warfare. But Maeda could not help but point out the impossibilities. How was a fleet to travel thousands of kilometers without being detected? And once there, that their current torpedoes could not be used on American ships in harbor due to the shallowness of Pearl. Unless a technical miracle can be achieved in torpedo bombing, this type of attack would be altogether impractical. Undismayed, Onishi realized a touch of madness was needed. 
So Anishi then turned to Japan's famous flying ace, a man who had his own flying circus. The carrier Kaga's first aerial division staff officer, Minoru Genda. Many in the fleet thought him mad, literally, but Yamamoto admired the man's physical and moral courage. Genda's first response when the attack plan was put to him was, the plan is difficult, but not impossible. Together, Anishi and Genda, inspired by a previous American maneuver, spoke of the idea of gathering several carriers together for the attack. If more than one was used, then it could severely cut down on the time needed for the bombers and fighters to form up to then launch their attack. Genda then took this inspired idea one step further. If all of Japan's carriers could be brought together for the attack, this would allow Yamamoto to hit the American naval power in every way possible. High-level bombing, torpedo attacks, and dive bombing. The enemy would be overwhelmed, which was the idea, and the resulting destruction, colossal, which is also what Yamamoto wanted. Yet others of the Japanese fleet, when they heard of this idea, did not understand what Yamamoto and Genda were going for. Their response was, yes, hit the Americans with an aerial attack, and then use the Japanese army for a proper invasion of Hawaii. But the minds behind Operation Z wanted to keep their carriers as far away from the Americans as possible. Hence, there would be no follow-up ground invasion. The complete destruction of the American naval forces would be enough. But even then, those who fought against Yamamoto wanted their bombers to target the American battleships. They, like so many, were still thinking in the last century. It was the carriers and their planes that was the U.S. Navy's true offensive weapons. The dreadnoughts and lesser vessels were for carrier protection primarily, even if many of both navies did not realize this yet. But what still seemed insurmountable was the shallowness of Pearl Harbor's waters. As its depths averaged only 39 feet, and the Japanese torpedoes needed 98 feet before they rose and leveled off, the dive-bombing aspect of the attack could not be incorporated. This is what was reported back to Yamamoto in March, which caused him, privately, to want to call the whole thing off. The high-level bombing and dive-bombers could not hit the carriers or battleships in such a way to raise the level of success sufficiently. However, publicly, Yamamoto admonished the two men and said that torpedoes could be modified, that pilots could be retrained. He ordered the men to think outside the box. Still, progress was made towards the attack. In April of 41, the Imperial Japanese Navy established the first air fleet. The carriers Agaki and Kaga, each almost 27,000 tons, each sailed by a 2,000-man crew, were brought together. The second carrier division was made up of the Soru and Hiru. Each group was escorted by four destroyers. But this did not stop the bad news that came as more research was done. Turns out that when past voyages were looked at, not one ship had ever sailed a latitude 40 degrees north 
during the supposed strike months of November or December. The seas were simply too rough. Also, their carriers had not yet perfected refueling at sea, which would be mandatory for such a long voyage. With this information, the more conservative elements had Yamamoto's plan altered again, back to hitting Southeast Asia first and only then taking out the American fleet as it came west. In a supposed compromise, Yamamoto would later order Vice Admiral Mitsumi Shizimu, commander-in-chief of the Sixth Fleet, to take his submarines and either attack the American vessels when they came west, or if his plan was approved, to venture forth and help protect the prize carriers. At the time, Japan only had some 63 subs in all, and Shimizu would take 25 subs and 5 midgets, a considerable percentage of their undersea forces. The midgets, being smaller, would be ordered into Pearl Harbor proper to sink any enemy ships missed by the bombing raids. Each midget had a two-man crew, and of those ten men, not a one volunteered, as they could guess the Americans' reactions after the initial attack. And those men were right. Only one of them would make it out alive. As early 1941 continued, more rumors came in from various countries' diplomats that said Japan planned to attack Pearl Harbor if negotiations failed to maintain the peace. Not unexpectedly, this led to increased communiques between Washington and Oahu. And yet, there was also, though with hindsight, increased confusion as to Pearl's defenses. The Army felt that, with its defensive measures, along with the fleets, when they were in harbor, were enough to hold back any attack, and indeed, make any attacker pay for the attempt. And yet the Navy was thinking that when their ships were in harbor, it was the Army who would be providing the shield. At some point in March, it was decided that the Army would conduct short-range aerial surveillance, while the Navy took care of long-range patrols. However, after December 7th, the Army's Hawaiian Department Chief of Staff, Colonel Walter Phillips, would testify, I never knew what the Navy had in its scout plane arsenal. In short, in 1941, there were plenty of ideas, many orders issued, but little follow-through and less follow-up. Okay, guys, time to get real. Did you know that 66% of men lose their hair by age 35? Trust me, I know what I'm talking about. No, don't skip this. This is for that 66% of you. Thing is, when you start to notice hair loss, it's too late. It's easier to keep the hair you have than to replace the hair you've lost. That's where 4 comes in. So ask yourself, do you want your hairline to recede, or do you want to do something about it first, using medicine and science? 4 is a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men. Thanks to science, baldness can be optional. Hims connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss, like well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescriptions to help keep your hair. Prescription solutions backed by science. And another great thing, there's no waiting room, no awkward doctor visits. Save hours by going to 4 It's so easy. 
answer a few quick questions, a doctor will review and prescribe the right thing for you. Products are shipped directly to your door. So guys, I want you to try this. You want you to try this. It's private and ships right to your door. What's not to love? So order now. My listeners can get a trial month of hymns for just $5 today, right now, while supplies last. See website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. Go to forhims.com slash worldwar. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash worldwar. Forhims.com slash worldwar. In March came the first of some 50 meetings between Secretary of State Cordell Hull and Japanese Ambassador Nomura. Hull got the talks off with a bang by asking the ambassador, did Japan really expect the United States to sit by while a few countries, namely Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and Japan, grew its military and gorged on peace-loving nations, their resources, and all the trade routes? Yet Nomura matched the intensity of his answer with the question's presenter by saying that Japan would make no further military moves unless the embargoes placed upon it by the United States forced them to. At a later talk, FDR got involved and warned the ambassador that the tripartite pact would only lead Japan into trouble. But again, Nomura matched this with the agreement seemed to be Japan's only salvation. But what Nomura did not know, could not know, was that Washington was reading the Japanese diplomat's mail. The U.S. had never been, up to this point, good at placing spies in other countries. In general terms, it went against their culture. However, what they were excellent at was breaking foreign codes. In 1919, Washington set up the Black Chamber, a program to decipher Japanese diplomatic correspondence. As their work was kept in red folders, the rather unimaginative Americans called this paperwork red. But in 1929, the Secretary of State, Henry Stimson, canceled the program because gentlemen do not read each other's mail. However, the Department of War, seeing this as an invaluable tool, kept the work going through their offices. The Office of Naval Intelligence later came on board. But in 1930, Japan changed their codes. The United States Navy struggled mightily to catch up, and within two years was back in business. As these new results were kept in blue folders, it was now labeled blue. However, with the Second Sino-Japanese War well underway, Tokyo again changed their codes. The Office of Naval Intelligence Research Desk then hired former music and mathematics teacher Agnes Miss Aggie Mayer Driscoll. She went on to learn every major Japanese ship, their military's common phrases, and matched them with numerous photos of Japan's former codes. Putting these all together, she broke their newest code. It was now called Black, but should have been called Aggie. However, the Japanese came out with a new diplomatic encryption system in March of 1939. Soon, red and black were a thing of the past, 
And just like that, Washington had no idea what messages were being sent to the Japanese ambassador there. But on September 20th, 1940, the 26-year-old Genevieve Gratchen broke this code. It was now called Purple. But again, my vote would have been Grotchen. The team celebrated by ordering Cokes all around. By 1940, the drink no longer contained cocaine, which had been removed in 1903. By early 1941, the U.S. had listening posts in Alaska, the East Coast, Hawaii, Guam, and the Philippines. Their intercepts would be sent to Washington by mail and received by Army and Navy intelligence. Those messages that were considered worthy by the military were then sent to the Secretaries of Navy, War, State, the Army's Chief of Staff, the Chief of Naval Operations, and the President's desk. By the fall of 41, the American cryptographers would know of the message's contents before the Japanese ambassador. The entire process would be dubbed magic, probably by FDR, but no one knows for sure. Magic was one of the few instances where the U.S. Army and Navy actually worked together, putting aside branch rivalry. But in April of 41, one particular message was shared with the British ambassador, who then sent the message home. As the Nazis had broken the British code, Tokyo was informed by Berlin that the Americans were able to read their diplomatic codes. On May 5th, the Japanese foreign minister, Matsuoka, cabled Nomura and told him the Americans were reading their coded messages. Did the ambassador have any indication of this? Nomura, a former chief of intelligence for the Navy, replied that he knew how to keep things secure, which didn't address the issue. But after launching his own investigation on May 20th, the ambassador confirmed that the United States was able to read some of their messages. But strangely, as the Japanese were still convinced that purple was safe, they kept using it, which allowed the Americans to keep reading their diplomatic correspondence. Problem was, Magic nor Purple ever uncovered anything about an attack on Pearl Harbor. But the reason for this was, the Japanese military never let on about Operation Z to the diplomatic corps. Still, as for Washington, since Magic turned up nothing about the attack being planned out, they felt that the threat was not yet real. For the time being, nothing was done to speed up the process by which the intercepted messages were sent to Washington. Admiral Husband Kimmel, commander of the Pacific Fleet, did not even know that magic existed. Yet Chief Naval Officer Stark believed that Kimmel did indeed have his own purple machine. Such was the need for secrecy that this basic confirmation was never ascertained. As turnabout is fair play, the Americans were unaware that the Imperial Japanese Army Intelligence had decoded all three of their diplomatic communications back in 1936, the gray, the brown, and the strip cipher. Even Britain and Germany had never broken the strip cipher. As for America's and Japan's military codes, those were still safe, even though the Americans had by the time of Pearl Harbor, 
broke in about 10% of the Japanese fleet general purpose system. So the Americans had their code breaking, as imperfect as it was, but Japan had spies at Pearl Harbor. One was Takeo Yoshikawa, a naval officer who, due to an illness, was reassigned to naval intelligence. He had studied English during his recovery and arrived in Hawaii as a new member of the Japanese consulate on March 27th of 41. His cover name was Tadashi Morimura, and his act as a drunk and playboy not only fooled the Americans, but his own co-workers at the consulate. Yoshikawa spent his time seeing all the sights, taking many aerial sightseeing flights, swimming to the edge of Pearl Harbor, and fishing to measure the depth of water in the harbor. By the time the spy was done, Yamamoto would have detailed accounts that would serve his torpedo bombers well. As 40% of Hawaii's residents were Japanese, the spy was just one of many locals working on the island. As mid-1941 went by, more and more warnings passed between Washington and Oahu, each having their own sources about a possible attack. And yet, as far as the American people knew, various publications like the New York Times, Collier's Magazine, and the Honolulu Star Bulletin kept telling them how strong, even impregnable, the Navy base was. Chief of Staff General George Marshall himself toured Hawaii in the spring, and a part of his report that went to FDR stated, The island of Oahu, due to its fortifications, its garrison, and its physical characteristics, is believed to be the strongest fortress in the world. To invade it, the enemy must transport overseas an expeditionary force capable of executing a force landing against a garrison of approximately 35,000 men, manning 127 fixed coastal defense guns, 211 anti-aircraft weapons, and more than 3,000 artillery pieces, and automatic weapons available for beach defense. It went on to say how any supporting enemy naval craft would be mangled while disembarking their men and on their way back to Japan, as in the initial attack could be handled, and that current forces would make any additional landings impossible. Of course, this did not take into consideration an attack that was less than a full invasion. Furthermore, the report was dead wrong in Pearl's ability to patrol the waters 750 miles out. Its number of B-17s was also less than half of what the report indicated. To be sure, Army Air Corps Commander General Hap Arnold had been screaming since 1939 about keeping enough newly produced planes to help Pearl and other locations. But what almost got Hap Arnold fired in January 41 was when the U.S. produced 159 bombers and 248 fighters, of which 77 went to the Navy, 15 went to the Army, and the remaining 315 went to the U.K. to fight Germany. Hap wouldn't stop shouting about this until FDR himself got a message to him that basically said, Shut up, or you're out. But it must be said that, thanks to Arnold's pleas, at least Hawaii did have 12 B-17s, 
Of course, only six of them were operational. Getting back to the game between Tokyo and Washington, on May 12th, Ambassador Namura presented to Secretary Hull a new treaty proposal. It requested that the U.S. ask Chiang Kai-shek to negotiate with Japan, and if not, then the United States would stop all assistance to China. That Japan and China would work out a deal for the removal of Japanese troops, but in the light of the communist threat, Japan had the right to station troops in China. That most favored nation status would be restored by both countries, and that Japan would help the United States guarantee the safety and neutrality of the Philippines. Hull waited a month before putting an obvious response to Nomura, namely, what proposals exactly would be put to China by Japan that the United States was supposed to encourage China to consider. The Secretary of State ended his response by telling Nomura that Japan could once again use trade instead of war to deal with its problems, or end up alone and threatened on all sides. Tokyo was outraged by this response. They, and it must be said, were only following the examples of the Western powers, were carving out their own empire. Did the United States really think Japan would give up everything they had fought for just to appease Washington? A compromise was considered. What if Japan were to leave the rest of Southeast Asia alone and just keep China? It was probably best that this consideration was not sent back to Hull. But then, on May 23rd, came one of those seemingly inconsequential writings that, in hindsight, should be examined more closely. Secretary of War Henry Stimson wrote, The President shows evidence of waiting for the accidental shot of some irresponsible captain on either side to be the occasion of his going to war. The obvious question has to be, was the President, with tension mounting between the United States and Japan, waiting for another Marco Polo Bridge incident? It would certainly take care of many of his problems of getting his country into war to actively help Britain and Russia. Truth be told, the United States, under FDR, was actively helping the Allies, and then some, as much as possible, without declaring war. Of course, the truth will never be known. FDR played things close to the vest, and either made decisions himself, but rarely spoke of it, or left certain items to others, completely. He was not a halfway executive. And yet, other statements he made before the attack on Pearl Harbor shows that he was obsessed with keeping the peace in the Pacific so he could focus on the Atlantic and Europe. But soon, after Stimson's observation, it was decided to send a quarter of Commander-in-Chief Pacific Fleet Husband Kimball's ships to the Atlantic. The carrier Yorktown, the battleships Missouri, Idaho, and New Mexico, four light cruisers, 17 destroyers, three oilers, three transports, and ten other auxiliary vessels. Sink Pat Kimmel wasted no time in complaining about these transfers by saying, The naval forces available to the Commandant are meager to the point of non-existence. 
Kimmel followed up this letter with his own presence in Washington. He complained of his paucity of resources versus the expectation of him to thwart any Japanese surprise attack. Kimmel was basically told that it would be best for the Pacific Fleet to not be in harbor when the surprise attack came. But on June 22nd, the world changed. Early that morning, Nazi Germany invaded Soviet Russia. Before the year was out, the Germans were just scant miles from Moscow. Japan's Foreign Minister Matsuoka was so excited about the possibilities that Barbarossa opened up, he went straight to the emperor and suggested that Japan help Germany against Russia and attack the West's possessions in Southeast Asia. Hirohito thought he was mad and told Prime Minister Kanoye to remove him. However, the current laws would not allow a prime minister to fire a cabinet member, and Matsuoka would not resign from his office. Kanoye had, by this time, pulled back from the tripartite pact and wanted continued peace with the United States. But at this time, certainly with its military seeing all the gains of Hitler and Mussolini, Japan's bed was already made. For the Japanese military, and really, they controlled the government, the question was, who do we attack? The Russians in the north, or drive further south? There was no, should we attack at all? As most of those that mattered felt that war, in some theater, was inevitable. This left the situation thus. The Japanese army wanted to attack the Americans. The Navy opposed this, while the civilians within the government couldn't decide either way. But now that Germany was tearing apart Stalin's forces, the Japanese army changed their policy, or at least their justification, for attacking to the south. They said, let Russia get weaker and weaker by fighting the Germans. This freed up the Japanese army to take what was needed in Southeast Asia, which would give them the resources to continue fighting in China, thus negating the actions and future economic threats from the United States, and would hopefully wash away the shame of their failure to successfully end the war in China. As for the United States, Tokyo believed that if the Anglo-Saxons there had to choose between saving the British or the Chinese, well, Asia would soon be under Japanese control. However, the greatest irony of Japanese military planning then occurred. No further plans were made to fight the United States. It began and ended with attacking Pearl Harbor. The rest would take care of itself. All this was made official on July 2nd, during a meeting of all the leaders at the Meiji Palace First Eastern Hall Conference Room. War preparations against Great Britain and the United States were to be stepped up. Russia, in good time, would then be dealt with. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. 
There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. On July 22nd, 1941, 125,000 Japanese troops pushed into southern French Indochina to build their own air and naval bases. But a few weeks before this, Ambassador Nomura told Foreign Minister Matsuoka that if this plan was carried out, then there was little hope of continued peaceful relations with the United States. Matsuoka was not impressed. Of course, as the Americans had broken the Japanese diplomatic code, they knew of this conversation. Clearly, the Japanese were going to invade the rest of French Indochina without a declaration beforehand. Tokyo's modus operandi was made plain. Many of FDR's secretaries wanted an oil embargo against Japan as punishment, but the United States Navy, along with Secretary of State Hull, did not, as this would be the equivalent of declaring war. This left FDR with no clear course of action as July 22nd approached. Still, he decided, it wouldn't hurt to rattle Tokyo's cage. The president sent a message to Prime Minister Kanoye and asked if the rumors were true that Japan was about to launch an attack against Russia. He left southern French Indochina out just to see what the response would be. Of course, Kanoye gave the banal negative, saying he only wanted peace. This was on July 9th. The next day, FDR told Assistant Secretary of State Sumner Wells to tell Churchill that the United States was willing to impose various embargoes should the Japanese overstep themselves in Southeast Asia. Yet the Americans were not Kanoye's only adversary. Matsuoka would not lessen his full-throated support for attacking Russia. The military's response was, we'll get around to it, but we have to move our troops further south first, should the Dutch East Indies need to be taken quickly. Yet the foreign minister would not be silent. So, in a rare meeting of the minds, the military and the prime minister joined forces to push Matsuoka out of the cabinet. He was replaced by Admiral Toyoda Tejiro. Then July 22nd came, and the Japanese, without too much resistance, occupied the rest of French Indochina. The next day, FDR had word sent to Ambassador Nomura that their negotiations were finished. Nomura wanted to plead the case for his country, so asked for an off-the-record talk with the president on July 24th. The ambassador met with the president and Sumner Wells at 5 p.m. that day. 
Nomura started out by saying that Japan honestly felt encircled by the United States, Britain, China, and the Dutch. FDR replied that this wasn't so, but that Japan's actions were causing the reactions of those countries. It was a chicken-or-the-egg question, which could not be answered to either's satisfaction. FDR then began along a new line of thinking, that if Japan had just approached the French about buying what items they needed, they could not only have gotten more, but would not have to waste so much money on a military presence. But Nomura replied that it was too late to change courses in regards to French Indochina. Clearly, FDR thought, the Japanese were not getting the point, so he made it abundantly clear the next day. On July 25th, FDR froze all Japanese assets in the United States. This course was quickly followed up by Britain, Canada, New Zealand, the Dutch East Indies, and the Philippines. The entire Japanese government and military were stunned, shocked into silence. It was best summed up by 1st Division of Military Affairs Chief Takaga. We had no inkling that the United States would be so angry over our going into southern French Indochina. But FDR wasn't done. The next day, July 26th, FDR altered the policy so that Japan had to have an export license to buy oil or gas, which could be denied at any time. However, things were soon out of the president's control as hardliners Assistant Secretary of State for Economic Affairs Dean Acheson and Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau Jr. would not release the frozen funds for the Japanese to buy gas or oil. FDR did not find out about this behind his back maneuver until September, but then realized he could not change anything as it would be seen as a sign of weakness to the Japanese. The U.S. ambassador to Japan, Joseph Grew, summed up July 1941 with the entry, the vicious cycle of reprisals and counter-reprisals is on. The obvious conclusion is eventual war. But FDR had one more move to make before July was out. On July 26th, the same day the president gave himself the ability to cut oil and gas sales to the Japanese, he nationalized the Philippine Army into the service of the United States. And the War Department followed this up by establishing a new Far Eastern Command. Chief of Staff General George Marshall followed this up by bringing Douglas MacArthur out of retirement with the rank of Major General and making him Commanding General U.S. Army Forces Far East, or USAFFE. The next day, FDR gave MacArthur the temporary rank of Lieutenant General. Roosevelt had just made a major commitment to the defense of the Philippines and established a serious stumbling block to any Japanese ambitions in the Far East. Okay, so here we are, finally only a couple of weeks late, and I promise you this will not go smoothly. We are doing the drawing for the... Monopoly? 
Monopoly. Americans World War Two. We're all in, in this, this together. together. Smooth. Yes. Okay. So thank you for all the people who entered. Uh, I think this is the largest contest we've had so far. So we'll do what we've done before. Each person here will get grab one name. Those will be the four finalists, and then we'll do the final drawing. And I'll contact the person that wins. So good luck to everybody. Some of you um, entered more than once, but to be fair, I took the extra entries out just, just to make it nice and fair. So good luck to everybody. So don't look. All right, who wants to pick a name first? Mommy. I will. All right. Do you excited? I think she's not excited because I don't not think she's name. entered her name. Yeah, if it's not for her, then what's the, what's the point? Okay. Um, she slammed it down. <laughs> wow. Okay. Chris Ellison? Ellison? Ellison. Ellison. So Chris Ellison is one of the one of the finalists. Sophie, would you want to draw a name? She's actually running away from the bowl. Okay, I don't know what that means. I'm looking. I'm not looking. I'm in what to say. <laughs> I grabbed a name. Gareth Morgan. All right. Who wants to grab a name? Yeah, don't look. There you go, Kiki. All right. Okay, she grabbed several names. I don't know what that means. Mike Kroll. Kroll? Kroll? Let's go with Kroll. All right. All right, Sophie, don't look. All right. All right. Philip Kite. All right. All right. So, Let's get that out of here. What are you doing? I'm just looking at it. Oh, okay. All right, so let's put those to the side. We got these four names. Shuffle them up, stir them up. What is going on over Nothing. there? It's a good thing this is audio. How awesome okay, who's going to draw the winning name? Nothing's going on. Who wants to draw the Skiki, do you want to draw the winning name? It's okay. Really? Okay, close your eyes. Oh, God. No, close your eyes, because you could be looking. Pick a name. All right. We have to turn away as long as you close your eyes. And the winner is of the Monopoly America's World War II, we're all in this together, is... Mike Kroll. So congratulations, Mike. Yes. Monopoly in your future. Yes. I hope you have plenty of fun with this mic. I'm emailing you soon, but first I'm going to give you a couple, <laughs> a couple of weeks to hear this. Oh, my God. This family is not ready for high tea time. Anyway, so thank you, everybody who entered. I've got some other stuff to give away from the World War II Visitor Center and the D-Day Memorial, so we'll be doing some other drawings, and I will see you soon with the next episode. Oh, my God. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. 
exploreminnesota.com live.